Hello, thanks for tuning in to the Trinity Church Nottingham podcast. It's great to have you with us. My name's Johnny, together with my wife Amy, we lead this church here in the centre of Nottingham. Our vision is to see the church on fire and the city alive. If we can help you in any way at all, please feel free to get in touch and email us at info at trinitychurchnottingham.org. Okay, let's jump into the podcast. Lord, we thank you that you're not an idea or a concept. You're a person. God, you came and made yourself known in Jesus. We thank you for the Bible and for the apostles and evangelists who recorded all of this that we can learn from, that we can learn what it is to live in the kingdom and to build the kingdom. I pray today, Holy Spirit, would you come and fill all these few thoughts I have, fill my words, anoint my words, that they would glorify you or give us open hearts to hear what you want to speak to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Hi, everyone. How are we doing? So I've had a, um, I've had a fun weekend. <laughs> I've, um, I've, I've been on a lot of trains, uh, done two weddings in the last 48 hours. Yes, marriage is alive. And um, yeah, it's been, it's been amazing. It's been a bit of a whirlwind. But I, um, I finished Focus last week on uh, Tuesday evening. And Kate and I had a glorious day together on Wednesday, got an Airbnb and had a little break. And then Kate, every year, the reason she isn't here today, every year she runs a Christian camp for, um, for young girls, connected to the Girls' Brigade, if any of you... Nerve that, big up the girls' brigade. So, so she runs this Christian camp every year, and so I dropped Kate. We had this day together, and I dropped her last Thursday um, in Devon with the car, because I'm magnanimous, so I left her the car, and, um, and then bought a copious amount of train tickets to get me through the next 48 hours. And I, um, and I got the train from Tiverton Parkway in Devon up to Nottingham, and uh, left myself about an hour to get to the house, grab some important bits of paperwork and documents that I needed, and then get out for the wedding rehearsal, which was happening here on the Thursday evening. <laughs> so <laughs> so I, get to, I get to Nottingham, order my Uber, and uh, get in my Uber, and about two minutes before arriving at the house, I realise I've left my keys in Devon. Oh. <laughs> and I... I'm checking, you know the thing where you do, you, you're in such disbelief, you, you know there's nothing in your pocket, but you check it about five times. Please, like, let it be hidden under a receipt or something, and there was nothing there. And so I, I get out of the Uber with my bag, knowing that I have this short amount of time to sort of turn things around, and get what I needed, and get to this wedding rehearsal. Kind of a big thing, a wedding rehearsal. And, um, and I end up phoning Kate, and I say, love, <laughs> I'm outside the house, and I don't have any keys. And we recently got our locks changed, so we, it's not even like we had any friends that would have a spare key. And, um, and yeah, and so I, I, I was outside the house, and I could look through the... Uh, I don't know why we do this, by the way, when we're locked out. We sort of look through the letterbox, as if by seeing a spare key on the side, we're going to be able to grab it. <laughs> like, it's crazy to me. 
And Kate was like, oh, you know, have you got a bit of string and a magnet? I'm like, no, I don't, I don't carry string and a magnet around with me. She said, maybe you can ask one of the neighbours and see if they've got... A... Anyway, anyway, it, I digress. But the point was, I couldn't get into the house, and the house, it had everything I needed in it. It had the special licence for the wedding that was happening, and um, a change of clothes, which were well needed at that point, and a shower, which was well needed at that point. And everything I needed and more was in this house. And yet, I couldn't access it. I didn't have a key, so we ended up calling the locksmith out, and you know, and the story ended with meeting a wonderful guy called Seamus, who let me into the house. But it felt to me, as I was thinking about today, because today, really, we're going to start on our series that we're going to be doing over the next few week, weeks, which is on the parables of Jesus, these stories that Jesus taught his disciples and the crowds through. And it sort of, to me, it was quite an interesting image of, of the kingdom of God, right? So my, my house, my house is not the kingdom of God, but go with me on this. But the kingdom of God being full of all the riches of what it means to be human, of all the riches of what it means to have a relationship with God, of what it means to be truly alive, truly, truly free, truly liberated, to live a life that is full, abundant. And yet so many people, although they know they're longing for that purpose, they're longing for so much of what the kingdom of God represents, feel like they have no access to it. They feel like they're shut out. And, and, and it started me asking the question, well, how did, how did Jesus start giving people access to the kingdom? How did he start teaching people what the kingdom was like? How did he start opening people's eyes to this kingdom that, that Jesus said had started, was, was here and present with them, was unfolding in front of them because he was with them? You know, did he write 22 theological volumes, well edited, like the great Karl Barth did, and hand them over saying, there you go, that's my kingdom manifesto, you go and crack on? Or did he give a, you know, a, a series of lectures on New Testament doctrine? No. Jesus, when it came to revealing the kingdom of God to his disciples and the crowds around him, what did he use? He used stories. Everyday, ordinary stories. Stories about families, about fathers and sons. Stories about, about wheat. Stories about farmers sowing seed. You know, pretty much none of these parables, none of the parables that Jesus used had any setting in a religious, uh, in, in a temple. They may have had a couple of priests involved with them, but they were almost always secular. Real illustrations, real stories about ordinary, everyday things happening to ordinary, everyday people. And yet... Hidden in these stories was dynamite. Hidden in these stories was, wasn't just a good moral tale. It wasn't just an interesting plot line. It was, in fact, the revelation of what the kingdom of God is like. These stories that seemed so ordinary snuck into people's hearts and, and sat there for a while, and they pondered them. And what did, what did this guy mean? What did Jesus mean when he said that? And then found later on they were exploding in their hearts. Ah. Oh, He's talking about the kingdom of God. He's talking about forgiveness. He's talking about all things being made right. Stories are powerful. And that's, so that's what we're going to be looking at. And really today I'm going to keep this optimistically short and just introduce us to this series that we're going to be looking at really over the next six, seven weeks. Stories are powerful. You know, one of my favorite things about Trinity is that we share stories all the time. Have you noticed that? Not just, you know, when something like Focus happens, but at the beginning of every prayer meeting, I've, I've, you know, I've been here a year and I've picked this up. I don't ever do a prayer meeting differently now. At the beginning of every prayer meeting, we say, we say who's got a story of what God's been up to? 
And we hear God, you know, we hear people talking about how God's been moving in their lives, what God's been doing in, in their own hearts and the hearts of the people around them. Stories are so powerful. But, you know, and, and to state the obvious, just because it shows us that we don't worship a, a, a dead, inactive God, but we worship Jesus, who is alive, who's risen, who's working amongst us, who is in the business of transforming lives. And so our expectation should be that God is on the move and wants to transform our lives. If either Jesus is alive or he's not. <laughs> either he's in the tomb or he's alive. Either he's a lunatic or he's God. You can make your own minds up. But I love that we share stories at Trinity. It's so important. I was with a friend of mine recently, uh, yesterday in fact. Again, it seems like a month ago I was in Kent. But yesterday I was with a friend of mine who helps lead a church in Kent. And he was asking me about our services here and what we've been learning at Trinity. And really the only, you know, he wasn't really asking for advice, but so the only thing I suggested was, well, why don't you try sharing stories more? Because honestly, I've learned that it's been transforming our community. Stories have a way of communicating truth in a way that facts just can't. You know, like, stories have this way of, like, getting underneath our skin, sinking into the deepest parts of us in the way that propositions and ideas don't quite have the same effect. We see this, whether it's a person's story, whether it's a story in a book, Big Up Lord of the Rings, John, uh, or whether, whether it's a story conveyed in film. You know, I don't think I knew what it was to grieve until Jack died and This Is Us. <laughs> Some of you are like, we don't know that happened yet. <laughs> Stories are so powerful. And, and, and as human beings... We are masters of story. Before we even can tell stories, we are living in a story. We're living in the story of, 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 of our parents, whether for good or for ill. We're living in the story of the cultural moment that we're in. We're living in the story of what God is doing in our lives. We are masters of story. We connect with story. We connect with each other's stories. And yet, we so often talk in fact and proposition. It's the difference between saying, who are you? And what is your story? Do you guys notice they're, two, they're subtly different, but they actually create two completely different responses? The who are you question, you know, I'm, well, I'm, I'm George Trevor White. I'm a priest in God's church, the Church of England, and I'm married to Katie. We've been married two and a half years now. I have a bachelor's degree in theology from the University of London, darling. And you know, it's all propositions. I'm five foot 11, I think. I don't know. Taller than Johnny, though. And... <laughs> But do you notice that's such a different answer from what is your story? Because our story says, well, actually, well, my name's George, and I grew up in a little place in Kent. And, you know, when I was nine years old, my, my mum sadly died, and that had a real effect on me and our family. My dad took early retirement, figured out what it was to be a single father, and we didn't grow up in a religious background, but through being banned at school, I ended up meeting a guy who invited me to church. I became a a Christian, it completely transformed my life. A few years later, three months before my own dad died, he gave his life to Jesus. It completely changed his life three months before he died. He began to pray, read the Bible. I have a brother who lives in Kent who I love very much, but our relationship hasn't always been easy. You see the difference? Which one were you more connected to? Stories have so much power. When me and Kate share anecdotes at parties, it's chaos. <laughs> If we share a story at a party, Kate is, my wife, is, is, she did science at university. She's a scientist through and through. And, 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 and she will say, you know, when Kate tells a story, she's like, I want the facts presented accurately 
in a linear fashion, and we can start and be done in 90 seconds. Me, Joe and John know exactly what I'm talking about. Me, I want you to know the feeling of the story. How did the characters develop in this anecdote? You know, what were they feeling? What were they thinking? How did it make me feel? I want you weeping by the time I finish this story. When me and Kate share a story, it is chaos because she's perhaps more used to talking in fact, which has its place. And I'm more used to talking with my emotions. Stories invite us into a different reality, don't they? They don't just invite us into different ideas. When I was telling you my story then, I invited you into the reality of who I am as a person. You know, different, different possibilities open up to us. Different ideas open up to us. We know this in the best novels. We, 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 we're invited into a world where sort of everything's up for grabs, where we can dream differently and think differently. But... Even the greatest stories that we can tell one another, even the greatest stories that come across to us in film or TV, they can dissipate. You know, I watch an episode of This Is Us and I'm blubbering by the end. Oh, so beautiful. And then 15 minutes later, I'm thinking, well, what are we going to have for dinner? Do we need to pick up some more toilet roll? You know, I, like, it, it dissipates quite quickly. We have this sort of emotional infusion, but then it often declines within five, 10 minutes. You know, I finish reading Lord of the Rings. And I'm like, I've been open to a whole world of beauty. Thank God for John L.R. I've been, my eyes have been opened. I see the world in a different way. And yet 15 minutes later, I'm sort of thinking, well, you know, I'm on a completely different plane. Stories, although they can have a deep emotional effect on us, often dissipate. They don't really require from us any real response. You know, you don't get at the end of a film a little bit of text saying, if you have been moved in this way during the, during, during the course of watching The Green Mile, please call this number and respond to this. We don't get any of that. The difference with parables, the difference with the stories that Jesus teaches about the kingdom is that Jesus' parables require a response. When Jesus tells stories, you can't, you can't leave without responding to them. You have three choices. Either you ignore them, you get offended by them, or you open up your life to them. The question with Jesus' parables at the end, the, the, the response that, that, that Jesus is going for, really, and the crowds and the disciples that are that are existing around him, are, will I let my life be changed by the teaching I've just heard? Will I let the story I've just heard, will I let the revelation of the kingdom within it change how I, how I think, how I act, the posture of my heart, how I see other people, how I see myself, how I see the entire world around me? You know, when we, when we, when we respond to the parables of Jesus, the idea is that we become surrendered to the kingdom of God. Parables invite us into this big story of what God's doing in Jesus, which is to make all things new. For us to live the, 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 the freest, most full human life possible, it requires a response. Does that make sense? Parables, I want to suggest, and we're going to be looking at this in the next few weeks, primarily do four things. Parables are used by Jesus to enlighten the people that are listening to them, to appeal to them, to challenge them, and to, and I think this one's really important, to provoke them. You know, we've called this series Parables, Stories with Intent. These are stories with a purpose. We cannot walk away from a parable without a response. And, and, and our scripture today, the parable of the sower, really is kind of the model for how Jesus teaches us to read all the other parables. 
There is so much here, by the way, and I'm, I'm aware of this in the parable of the sower. That is, there's some really challenging bits here, and I realize I'm not going to be able to talk about all of them. What does it mean that those who have are going to be given even more, and those who have not is going to be taken away? And what does it mean for that they would hear but not perceive, and all the rest of it? I'll give you a couple of quick answers, but I'm not going to be going into loads of that. You know, what Jesus is talking about with stories is that those who open themselves up to the kingdom, those who open themselves up to the kingdom, open themselves up for God pouring more of who he is into their lives. Those who choose to ignore the kingdom, choose to ignore Jesus, what, 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 they, what they have is taken away. They haven't, they haven't got any openness to God. God, is, you know, God. God gives us dignity in our choices, by the way. You know, God, God doesn't force something upon us. We have to choose. We have to choose how we respond to God. And the parable of the sower is all about hearing. It's all about this response. It's all about what we do when God speaks to us. You know, many people have wondered whether the parable of the sower is about the sower. Fair question. Whether it's about the seed, whether it's about the harvest. Really, the parable, and uh, you know, and this, by the way, this is how Jesus interprets it, so, you know, this isn't just my good idea. The parable really is about the soil, You know, some seed thrown along rocky places, some seed thrown along the path, some seed thrown and choked by thorns, and some sown on good soil. The parable is about the soil. The soil represents how we choose to respond to God's work and action in our lives. So the question to us in this parable is, you know, do we choose to ignore it? You know, we can, we, Jesus can open the kingdom of God up to us. He can speak into our lives and we can choose to ignore it. That's the seed thrown by the path. Do, do we accept the message of Jesus? Do we accept God into our lives as long as it doesn't cost us anything? That's the seed sown in rocky places. Do we accept, do we accept Jesus? Do we accept God's work in our lives? But as long as at some point it could take second place. As long as, you know, if we had a really good ambition or a good idea, that that could come first. The good soil is the person who hears the word of God to them and opens their whole life up to it. Says, I'm willing to be transformed by this. Not just, not just opening themselves up to it, but expecting to be changed by it. And, you know, so often we read this parable and we think, you know, oh, well, well, the sower has sown kind of uh, the majority of the seed on these terrible places, and, um, and then a third of it he's sown on good soil. But actually, in the, in the, in the Greek, the, the word for seed that God has sown on good soil is plural. It, the other ones are singular, that God, you know, a seed fell among a path, a seed fell among a rocky place, a seed fell among thorns. But when it comes to good soil, it is the plural, seeds fell on good soil. So just to be clear, God expects that we can receive his word with joy. It's not about us, it's about his grace within us. And the, and the second expectation when, when we receive God's word on good soil is that it bears fruit. Let's have a look at this in verse uh, 8. Sorry, well, no, let's go from verse 7 in Matthew 13. Other seeds, says Jesus, fell among thorns which grew and choked up the plants. Verse 8, still other seed fell on good soil where it produced a crop, a a crop, a crop, 160 or 30 times what was sown. You know, the expectation is that when we receive God into our lives, when we say yes to Jesus, when we say yes to what God wants to say to us and what he wants to do in our lives, we bear fruit. 
We become more free. We live lives that are full. We live lives that flourish. You know, some commentators have looked at this and thought, okay, is Jesus, I mean, he's so clearly exaggerating, a hundredfold crop, a thirtyfold, sixtyfold. Is he talking about when Jesus comes back? Is he talking about eternity? But there's absolutely no evidence for that. Jesus' expectation is that when you receive the kingdom of God, you can be fruitful, miraculously fruitful in the here and the now. In fact, when Jesus talks about, uh, talks about seed yielding fruit in Revelation, it's often, about, it's often in the millions, not the hundreds. The expectation is that we can bear fruit where we are right now, and it's all about obeying. It's all about hearing and opening our lives to it. I, I learned this yesterday, that the Hebrew word for hearing is translated in English often as obeying, sama. To truly hear, to truly accept God's word is to obey, to open our lives up to it. And this parable shows us what all the parables are about. Like I've already said, it it gives us a model for how we read all the other parables. Because what is the word, what is the seed that God sows into our lives that he offers to us? Well, it's himself. It's the gospel. It's that God has given himself to you, for you, that he has died for you, that you can live a life of freedom, you can live a life of abundance, you can live a life in forgiveness, that you can know God. You were made to know God and are invited into that relationship by Jesus. And this is, this is irrelevant of your story, by the way. This is, this is completely true for anyone, wherever we're from, wherever our background is. I met a guy yesterday. I was at the, um, the pub before this wedding, as you do, and I was preparing the sermon for this wedding that I was about, I was about to um, speak at. And I met this guy there. There was, there was a guy who was smoking outside, and, um, and I asked him, I sort of just said, oh, how are you, mate? How are you? And he said, oh, I'm getting... You know when someone doesn't give, like, a typically British response, like, oh, yeah, I'm fine. They say sort of, oh, I'm... Oh, I'm getting there. And you think, gosh, that's a cry for help, isn't it? When us Brits uh, say, you know, I might not be okay. And I, I said to him, I said, you know, are you, are you all right? Are things hard at the moment? He said to me, well, yeah, things are really hard. I've just broken up with my girlfriend, and she's not letting me see my kids. So we've got kids together. And so I moved in with my dad, but me and my dad have had a big falling out, and he's chucked me out. So now I've got nowhere to live. This guy's mid-20s, and um, I'm trying to figure out what to do next. And so I've come to this pub because to try and get my head straight. And I, and I asked this guy, Matt, I said, you, you know, I, look, I'm, I'm a Christian and I, I believe that God really wants to meet with you and I believe that he cares for you and he wants to help guide you in this moment. Can we pray together? And so we stood on Sheraton High Street in Kent, praying together, praying for his dad, praying for his kids, praying for his ex-girlfriend. And what's happening in that moment is that, and I said to him, you know, that Jesus, is, Jesus offers you to live in this way of life. Jesus offers you life in all its fullness. Matt, no matter how messy your life feels, no matter how difficult things feel, the offer to you is to know God. God loves you. He wants to meet with you in that. And the last point I want to talk about is that parables, these stories that Jesus teaches through, don't just provide us with teaching about the kingdom of God. Of course they do that. But these parables also give us a model of how we can point other people towards God, of our own stories. As Christians, you know, we're not primarily, I I love theology, by the way, I really care about theology, I think it's great, love it. But as Christians, we're not primarily a group of people, we're not primarily a people of a theology, we're people of a story. 
As Christians, we carry a story, God's love in the person of Jesus, the gospel, and God's work, and this is important, in our own lives. We are people of two stories, God's love in Jesus and what God has done in our own lives. You know, I talked a little bit earlier about my dad, and I became a Christian, like I said, when I was 14 years old, and my, and my dad became a Christian when I was in my, in my 20s, I was 20. And, and I, I tried so many times since I became a Christian to sort of, you know, convince my dad that it was an intellectually viable thing to be a Christian. You know, I'd spoken to him so much in proposition and fact, if you like. I had answered all the questions that I thought my dad would have. We went, I, you know, I say we, it wasn't a conversation, I was usually just talking at him. We went on huge discourses about, you know, how do you reconcile the goodness of God with the suffering you see in the world? We talked about heaven and, and, and hell, and we talked about all the big questions, some of which you can explore in Alpha. And I spent so many years after becoming a Christian trying to convince my dad, trying to answer questions with facts and propositions that I assumed he had. And then one day in 2013, and when I was 20 years old, I was back from university, I was back home from university for a short break, and I was sat at a dinner table with my dad. And my dad looked at me and he said, <laughs> he's always, he used to have, take his glasses off when he had something to say, he took his glasses off, put them on the table, and he looked at me and he said, son... When you became a Christian in your early teens, I thought it was um, a phase. <laughs> the phase hasn't seemed to end, though. And now you're in London, you're studying God, and you're thinking about being a vicar. And my dad said, I've got to ask you, like, what's it all about? 65 years old, the man sold tires for a living. He did not go in for philosophy or spirituality or anything like that. It was not airy-fairy. And I sat there and I told for the very first time, and isn't this surprising, because I just never considered doing this before, I sat there and told Dad my story. Well, Dad, when I was 14 years old, when I was least interested in God, when I was sat at the back of a church meeting, a bit like this one, but in a tent, being a bit too cool for it all, God came and met with me. And God's been transforming my life ever since. Like, Jesus, I know that that he's with me. The way I see people now, Dad, is different. The way I see myself is different. Like, that I have this purpose and this, and this meaning and this desire to, to, see, to see all that God wants to see in the world. It's completely changed my life. And my, I told him my story, and probably far more articulately than that, or less articulately. And my dad, at the end of the story, said, well, I think I better give that a go. And so we prayed together at my kitchen table. My dad asked Jesus into his life. He bought a Bible, started praying. And three months before his dad had a, had a relationship, a, a transformative relationship with God. Stories change everything. When we're Christians, when we come to know Jesus, our testimonies are living parables because they say this. This is my ordinary, normal life. And it has been invaded by the kingdom of God. And do you know what it says to people? This is available for you too. This is available for you too. St. Paul, in all of his letters, with all of his great thoughts and great theologies, always, always, always made a point of repeating his testimony. St. Paul's greatest teaching was the transformation of God in his own life, his own transformation. God has done in our life 
beautiful things by his spirit. And our own stories can provoke a response. Because when we tell our stories to others, others think, well, God loves Tony, even Tony. Maybe he can love me. If God worked that way in Debs's life, maybe he can work that way in my life. If God brought freedom to Adam's addiction, I'm making names up now, Adam isn't addicted to anything. <laughs> maybe he can bring freedom to me. The parables invite us into the kingdom of God and they also show us where the kingdom of God is present in our own lives, in our own stories. Our own lives can become parables. And people are longing for transformation. People are longing for stories. In the, in, in the, in the pre-prayer before this, we were, sh- we were sharing about how, how more and more when we meet friends that perhaps wouldn't usually call themselves Christians or wouldn't usually come into church, maybe you're here today and you're in that category. You know, we, we have so much information in the world. We have more, have more information than we've ever had before. The internet has opened up to us a plethora of intellectualism, and yet it still can't answer the basic questions of our purpose, meaning, what, how we can feel loved, how we can know God. But interestingly, the story of a transformed life can... <laughs> When we share our stories with people, people encounter God. And God is, God is right. Maybe God is writing a story in your life now. Maybe you're in here today and your life feels really messy. Maybe it feels out of control. Things feel really difficult. And God is writing a story in your life of how he is going to come and transform it. I spend a bit of time, some of you will know this in this room, a bit of time with um, a church called Battelle, who, um, who they help people with addictions, get free of their addictions. And in the process, so many of these people, as they're coming off drink or drugs or heroin or whatever it is, as they're going through withdrawal, hear me now, this is, this is huge. As they're going through withdrawal, so many of these people, in the middle of that, find Jesus for the very first time. People that even weeks before were addicted to drugs, were subject to their own uh, relationship with drink or whatever. And yet, as they're going through withdrawal, when they least expected it, God comes and meets with them, completely changes their story. They become living parables of what God is doing in the world. Maybe God is wanting to change your story today. Maybe you're in here and you just want a better story. The invitation is to respond to God, to open yourself to him and let him transform your story. Or maybe God is wanting to show you that what he's already done in your life is to reveal to you your story again, the power of your own testimony. Will you let him show you his glory through your own story? Will you let him reveal himself to you today? Should we stand? Let's stand together. Hey, thanks for listening to the Trinity Podcast here in Nottingham, England. Each week at the end of the podcast, we want to take a few minutes to share some of the stories of what God is doing in our city and in the life of the church. This week, I'm here with Matt Proctor. Hello. Matt helps lead Monday Night Football. It's on Monday nights, isn't it? Monday nights. Forest Fields. Mm. What time? 9 p.m. to 10 p.m. How many people usually come out for that? Averaging about 28 every Monday or something at the moment. I think there were 27 there this last week. Do you get multiple games going? Yeah, averaging probably about two games. One, two games are seven aside. So not full pitch? Um, Not full pitch. Not full pitch at the moment. We've got a magic number of about 
26, and if it hits over 26, then we'll go for two matches. If not, we'll do one big brawl yeah. <laughs> and a big pitch. So it's open to anyone, guys and girls, of all skill levels, too, from people Dennis, who have... there were some really, truly terrible players that come on. Yes, come on, like myself, but I don't come regularly You don't anymore. come enough. No. And there are also some very... But it's all, every week, a very competitive football match is, is had. We've got some very good players as well. Everyone will enjoy themselves. And uh, this all actually started over two years ago now when Gaz and yourself and some others, we started getting some just youth after school to come around to do some football drills and play a match together. How did that all start? What was that like? And how did that transition into Monday Night Football? So we, Gaz, who used to work for Youth of the Christ in Nottingham, had... Uh, I think they had a, a little money for an after-school football project that they wanted to run. And we decided to do that through Trinity to kind of link some of the kids around the area to, to the church, get to know them and, yeah, see if we could play a bit of football together. And we fly at the area and let them know that there'd be, we would just be on the pitch, down the hill from the church, every Tuesday for a couple of hours, open to anyone. And for a few months, we got quite a few... Young, young kids down. We did drills. We did matches. We had a laugh. Got to know, got to know kids. And then after a while, summer holiday came, and we lost, lost a bit of momentum. But it showed how easy it is, how open football is, how open and invite it is, and how easy it is to get to know people, to get people along, if you give them the option of playing football alongside it. And these Monday nights, it's not just people from the church. It's friends of friends, it's people from the community. It's a pretty good mix. Yeah, I reckon we've been getting about 50%, 50% from church and 50% from wherever else. I think that's what's been the best thing about it is it's been such an easy invite for, for people. We've had people who have been coming along because they know one person from church and then they've gone, oh, I think all of my friends need to not just get someone to play football, but in particular this group of people, it'd be great for, for them to be involved in some sort of community to be meeting these people consistently and it's friendly it's competitive it's we're trying to strike that balance between doing competition and trying to be as good as we can be and be as uh, want to win as much as we can without losing our welcoming touch and um, and hospitality and doing that in a healthy way and we even have people walk coming in off the streets just the, that area is just a lot of people just drop in and see who's playing football at that time and so we've had a lot of people who just come along consistently and we've gotten to know over the last year two years just because they popped in one Monday and kept yeah. on kept on coming and striking that balance between like the welcome and actually some competition you guys actually this next year are joining a, a Derby football league is it a church league it's a church league yeah so I think whereas Monday nights have been very good at just being like this is open to anyone really easy invite for people who come to church or who don't come to church or you know anyone that wants to play football can come along on Monday night great what we're hoping to do this coming season with our 11 aside team is, is to step it up and the, the commitment the community aspect of that whereas Monday nights you kind of you might get 10 minutes either side to, to chat and get to know people but it's it's a laugh and it's a bit it's fun it's competitive I think if we what we've got now is this team we've got a group of lads who wanted to um, who wanted together 
build something to be as good as it can be. So we've got this team where we're going to train together, we're going to play together, and then we're going to eat together. Yeah, the 11 sides team will kind of take it that one step further where, yeah, just over the course of the year, with this kind of joint goal of being a very good football team and just spending a lot of time together and kind of establishing the values that we want to set from the start. Yeah, build this kind of like community around doing competition in a healthy way about doing a lot of these like churchy words that we've used even with the non-church people like community and commitment and competition the three c's which is quite embarrassing but we've uh, i think because now that we've got this like trust in it together like everyone's kind of bought in and it's this buy-in now that i think we can use just to like yeah i think we can build like deep levels of trust um consistency actually working hard together to like achieve stuff collectively and individually to become better as a team to become better individually and i just think we can model that sort of team mentality or community in a way that a lot of them won't have experienced i think football is in and out of the church probably more out of the church football clubs are one of the only places where that community still exists yeah that kind of collective mentality. Can't think of many examples where that's still relevant. Yeah. Past the age of eighteen. Or whatever. Sure, sure. And if, um, if someone, someone from our community, someone not from our community, they hear about football. How do they get involved? Uh, well, best bet is to come along on a Monday night, Forest Fields Sports Zone, um, on the AstroTurf. Get there ten to nine. We play nine till ten. Three pounds. Um, but don't let that stop you. If you don't have three pounds in the account, chat to me on uh, me or Gaz or Joe or Phil, the Trinity FC committee, as we've labelled <laughs> ourselves. And yeah, if you if you want to play football, then then come on. If you want to commit to being part of this longer term project, then then maybe the eleven aside team for you as well. I know there's a there's a few women at the church who are looking to set up a, a women's team um, soon. So if you want to get involved in that, then then coming over on a Monday night, I chat to Irina, who'll be an intern at Trinity from next yeah, year. Yeah. There's just something about football that just makes it so easy to get people through that that door initially, and then there's something about competition and um, trying to build something together that's so much better at building community than everything else. Yeah. So football is just it's really good. Amazing. Thank you so much, Matt, for sharing. Alternatively, if you have a story of something God is doing wherever you're listening from in the world, we'd love to hear from you. Please send us an email at stories at trinitychurch.org. Thanks for listening.